we won the seat of Wentworth, it would make history. And my friends, we have made history tonight. This win tonight should signal a return of decency, integrity and humanity to this country. Welcome to the New Politics Podcast, the place where we analyse everything and anything to do with Australian politics. We're on iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube and Spotify, or you can go straight to our website at newpolitics.com.au. In this episode, we look at the new minority government, the politics of asylum seekers and the shifting sands back to the centre, and how to market a Prime Minister. Are we looking at a clearance sale or a closing down sale? I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, writer, lecturer and historian. There have been many big political moments in recent times and now we've reached some rare political territory. The Liberal Party lost the Wentworth by-election with a 19% swing against it in its Conservative heartland and that's the first time that they've lost the seat. And now we've got just the second minority federal government since 1943. As a result, the government has lost its one-seat majority and now we need to rely on a crossbench of six to have any of its legislation pass in Parliament. It's a spectacle for the followers of politics, but is it really such a good outcome for the country? Given that both parties seem to be feeling this wave that we've seen overseas with the election of Trump, the massive support for Bernie Sanders in the States, the support for Brexit in Britain, I think we're seeing a move away from that slick professional establishment figure. Even the radical Labour Party has people in it been brought up through the system who are part of the system who now have a lack of trust from everyday people. This is, I think, a sign that we don't have a populist figure like Jeremy Corbyn or Donald Trump or Bernie Sanders, but we are seeing a move towards, at least initially, independence. I think there'll be a lot of people who are on very good margins who find that their margins won't be as good. It's becoming really interesting, and I think that, that this is our version of that change. And I think it's quite a fascinating situation where an independent such as Karen Phelps, and she has been declared the official winner of the seat of Wentworth, essentially it was a pop-up campaign. The Liberal Party, they actually set up a $1 million fund to to fight this campaign against Karen Phelps. And, of course, the Labor Party was in the campaign as well. But Karen Phelps, essentially, it was a pop-up campaign. And and the longer it seems like the longer the campaign went on, the more disasters the Liberal Party had. It was almost like every issue that Karen Phelps talked about flowed in her favour and every issue that David Sharma talked about flowed against him. For a man who who is supposed to be a marketing professional, Scott Morrison. And I think the blame sheets home to Scott Morrison. I think uh, David Sharma ran as good a campaign as he was able to. I think you could have had Barack Obama run for the Liberal Party in that seat and he would have lost. You could have had John Howard run in the seat and he would have lost of Wentworth. It sheets home to the Liberal Party themselves. Dave Sharma was up against a very strong independent and it's really interesting. Other people are now starting to think about running as independents in key seats. Jane Caro is thinking of running against Tony Abbott. Fiona Simpson of the National Farmers Federation is looking at running against Barnaby Joyce. I think this is really interesting. 
the success of Karen Phelps did provide a few pointers for what may happen at the next federal election. And I think you're absolutely right. There probably will be quite a few other independents running. One thing that I noticed was that comparing the two celebrations, if you like, from the Liberal Party and for the independent, Karen Phelps. So, of course, Karen Phelps, she had a great celebration because she was the actual victor. But then when the ABC crossed over to the Liberal event at the Intercontinental Hotel, it was almost like their celebrations were even greater than Karen Phelps, even though they lost the seat. So, to me, it just felt like they had a bit too much hubris. They'd lost the seat and it was almost like they were savouring from the scraps of defeat. There's a sense in which he nearly won. He was only 1,300 votes behind or something. They were expecting a lot worse. But the swing was such that statistically, if every seat in the country went against the Liberals in that way, there'd be no Liberal members. No matter how you look at it, no matter how you swing it, it was a disaster for the party. And they seem to have learnt nothing from it. Business as usual, we've listened, we've learned, we're moving on, we're not talking about it anymore, let's do the same things. And as Einstein allegedly said, the sign of insanity is to do the same thing looking for different results over and over again. There are a couple of writers on this seat as well, and also we could apply this to the seat of Wagga Wagga. This wasn't a traditional Labor versus Liberals result. It was Liberal versus Independent. The same thing happened in Wagga. It was Liberal versus Independent as well, where they had a 29% swing against the Liberal Party. So... There's a couple of writers that we need to include here. Getting back to their celebrations, like the thing that I did notice was that it was almost like this severe swing against the Liberal Party didn't happen. I knew there would be tough days and there would be great days. Today's a tough day, but the great days are coming. The result today is on us, the Liberals, not on Dave Sharma. We believe in a fair go for those who have a go. We believe that the best form of welfare is a job. We believe that it's every Australian's duty to make a contribution and not take a contribution. And we believe this. You don't rise people up by bringing others down. Let me tell you who doesn't believe those things. The Labor Party. Bill Shorten doesn't believe those things. My message to Bill Shorten is you will never lead a country that you want to divide. We will stand up for what we believe till the bell rings. And the bell hasn't rung, Liberals. The bell hasn't rung. We will take this all the way to the next election. Thank you, Liberals. The following day, we had Josh Frydenberg, the Treasurer. He was saying, well, we're not going to change anything in our campaigning or in our techniques. We're just focused on getting power bills down. Maybe they might have a case of hard hearing. I'm wondering how much a factor the donors are. The rumours have swelled that Malcolm Turnbull was removed because the coal industry didn't like the idea he was going to maybe put a tax on them. Rupert Murdoch had had enough of him. The party's being run by the big interests. This has happened before, of course, in 1941. The party basically split and regrouped because it was seen as being too close to big business. In 1929, what was then the Nationalist Party was split because it was seen as being too close to big business. When we're not involved in the inside, we can only sort of see what we're told. Certainly people like Stuart Robert 
are not a benefit to the party. At the and moment. also, it does refer back to what we were talking about before, that um, what sort of lessons can be can be learned from this by-election. And quite often, that's what by-election results are all about. You can have weekly polls or monthly polls or analysis and that sort of thing. But it, you cannot get a better test than having a by-election to see how your policies are travelling. And I was actually quite surprised by the level of hubris that did come out from the Liberal Party after the Wentworth by-election. And and that's not to say that just because a, a sitting government does have a severe by-election loss, it doesn't necessarily mean that that goes on to lose the next federal election. So we've had a couple of instances where in 2001, the sitting Liberal National Government at that time, in the by-election of Ryan, there was a 10% swing. But six months later, they ended up winning the election. And there's also the Wills by-election in 1992, where there was a 23% swing against the Labor government. Yet 11 months later, in a general election, the Labor Party managed to win. The circumstances in the Wills by-election and the Wentworth by-election are very, very similar. Malcolm Turnbull recently was challenged and Scott Morrison became the Prime Minister. Turnbull then resigned from Parliament and that triggered the by-election in Wentworth. Back in 1992 in the Wills by-election, Bob Hawke resigned from his seat after he was challenged and defeated by Paul Keating and Paul Keating became the new Prime Minister. The difference is is that the, the electorate, I think, was prepared to give him a go. I don't think they want to give Scott Morrison a go. I think they think he's had his go. He had his go as treasurer where he didn't impress. He had his go as in the very brief honeymoon period that he squandered. I get the sense that they, they're living in this bubble. You know, they hang around Mark Latham and Rowan Dean and Andrew Bolt and Alan Jones and Prue McSween, Miranda Devine and see this as the mainstream of Australia, when in fact those commentators are a little bit to the right of mainstream Australia, despite their claims to the contrary. The future's not looking good for the Liberal Party. They've got a state election coming up in Victoria, and on current polling, they're likely to lose that. The federal polling is absolutely dire for them, and whatever the case is, just continuing with the same messaging, the same strategy... And having the Prime Minister just travelling around Queensland in a bus probably isn't going to change things for them. And the results from the Wentworth by-election may just end up being replicated at a federal election whenever it's held. In fact, I know that there are senior Liberal Party members who are very worried about the next election. At this point, they're trying to save as many seats as they can and work out who should we pour our resources into. And who can we let go? It's it's not a good place for the party to be, but it's it's brought all this on itself ultimately by not listening to the people, by not really thinking about what traditional liberal values are, by listening to the Canberra bubble and by listening to the media bubble, and not actually going outside. And it's a trap that when you're in these positions, you can fall into. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, listen through SoundCloud, YouTube and Spotify or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, the politics of asylum seekers and the shifting sands back to the centre. (music) 
Asylum seeker policy and immigration have been vexed and divisive issues in Australian politics for a long, long time. And the hardline policies implemented by both sides of politics have been chipped away by doctors, Green and independent MPs, refugee advocates. And this may mean that we're finally getting to see some resolution for the people stuck in immigration detention on Manus Island and Nauru. It was a strong issue that resonated during the Wentworth by-election. Karen Phelps, the independent, she's a strong advocate for getting families off Nauru and has indicated that with cross-bench support, she will pressure the government to resolve the issue. Now, this has been a stain on the Australian political landscape for a long, long time. It's an issue that's been within the realm of conservative politics all around the world for almost 30 years, and it's no different in Australia. But at least there's some progress on removing children from immigration detention. But do you think that this will be the end of the divisive debate about immigration detention in Australia? I think the hung parliament has frightened them. It's almost the day after. Oh, we've taken kids off. And he claimed that they've been taking them off quietly without actually presenting any evidence that he's done that. He may well have, and I hope he has. It's not just the children either. There are men and women who shouldn't be on those islands or who should be at least treated much better than they are. What the government will tell you and what a lot of commentators will tell you is that they are illegal immigrants. This is not true. And it can't be stated enough. Asylum seekers are legal entities with rights. Sure, you may need to process some. There is a very small chance that criminals are using asylum to get in. Criminals tend to fly here. And of course, there's the health issues too. You don't want to bring in diseases. But it doesn't mean that you need to treat people awfully like they've been doing. The Villawood Centre worked very well for years as an asylum centre while they were processed. Things have changed since Villawood was set up uh, some time ago, but also the debate has changed quite a lot in Australia. We've come a long way since Malcolm Fraser decided to allow 2,000 Vietnamese people that arrived by boat in, in the late 1970s. The conversation was much, much different then, and, and I guess it gets down to what sort of political authority the, the leader of the party has at the time as well. But all sides of politics have contributed to the, essentially it's a disaster that we've got in immigration detention. Uh, All sides of politics have contributed to that. The the Labor Party did set up mandatory detention. That's the the word that we've been hearing for a long time. They, They set that up in 1992, but it's almost like the whole issue has been hijacked by the conservative side of politics. And I can recall that back in 1998, Philip Ruddick, who was the immigration minister of the time, he announced that villages were packing up from the Middle East and coming to Australia. But it seems like every election, the whole thing gets gets ramped up a little bit more. It was ramped up quite a lot during the Tampa election in 2001. We had a bit of a quiet zone between maybe 2002 and 2008, but it's come back with a vengeance over the past few years. I think they saw it as partly their natural... And this isn't, of course, every member of the Liberal Party. But I think there is a certain group of ministers where it's their natural philosophy to treat asylum seekers this way. I think there's also a sense in which people felt that it might be a an election-winning strategy. And it may have played some years back. It doesn't play anymore, I don't think. I think there are more people who are aware of the legal definition of asylum Australians, I think, still like the fair go. And I think that they're seeing people not getting a fair go. 
And even if it's just, yeah, we've got to move the kids off and get them protected. That's a big shift in thinking from what the government would prefer. There has been have been quite a few opponents of the immigration detention in Manus Island and Nauru. And you're right, there's still a lot of people that are in immigration detention. It's not just the children and the families. The Liberal Party and the National Party, they have owned this political issue for a long, long time. And Scott Morrison has actually got to stop the boats memento in his office as well. Just disgraceful. And it's a political message that it doesn't matter what the issue is, they'll always bring up border security, stopping the boats as a political issue. And I noticed that Bridget McKenzie, she was on the ABC the other other night and they were talking about something completely unrelated but it all got back to strong borders and stopping the boats. Obviously there's a way that these simplistic messages can be counteracted. I think that xenophobic strain has diminished in Australia and I'm, I'm, I'm seeing this from talking to people and not just people in the inner city bubble. I do travel around a little bit. I, I was talking to a tow truck driver outside of Golgong, as a name drop for you. He was saying, he started talking about this truck delivery and it was, are these guys from India? And I internally I rolled my eyes thinking, here we go. And he said, they couldn't drive the truck. And he said, I actually felt really sorry for them. They've been brought out here. They haven't been given the training. And then they're the ones who copped the blame when it was in fact the boss of the company who hasn't trained them properly. And I thought, oh, that's a different approach that I wasn't expecting from this and I think that's a fairly common and it's a generational thing too I think as the older generation who voted for Howard in 96 are starting to be less active in politics for all kinds of reasons we're getting a newer younger and more open generations coming through and I think maybe that's the takeaway the shifting sands of politics are always moving either to the left or to the right so it could be argued that Australia has shifted to the right over the past 15, 20, 25 years, but it seems like it's going the other way now. And it's not just on asylum seeker issues, but there's other factors on the banks, unions, equitable society, education. So there seems to be that there is this shift away from the right, back to the centre, possibly to the left. And with asylum seeker issues and people in detention, it seems like the Australian public is getting sick of it. Admittedly, there's quite a large section of the community that will want this as a strong issue. They want strong borders. Everyone wants strong borders, of course. There's a way that you treat people fairly and rationally, and it doesn't matter what the case is. There will be people that will want to argue that people should stay in immigration detention forever. So politically, there's a balancing act that needs to needs to take place. I'm interested in what the sophologist Peter Brent mentioned some time ago, that he suggested that at the next federal election, because he, he could sense that the boat issue and immigration detention was becoming a big issue again for the Liberal National Party, he suggested that the best thing would be for Morrison or Dutton at the time to become Prime Minister. They run hard on asylum seeker issues and boats, and then they lose the election. And it would only be in that sort of situation that they'd realise, well, wait a minute, this is not the issue that we thought would win us the election, so we're not going to run with it anymore. Let's look at something else. They're running out of stuff they can run on. They can't run on the economy. They've had two of the worst treasurers, and I and I can state this objectively, uh, in that none of their budgets were ever passed. That was the first time since 1975, and 1975, I think, was the first time. So they can't really run on strong economy. 
although he's trying to say, I will give you more jobs, without really saying how. Uh, they can't run on strong borders because people don't want strong borders in that way. I think this morning, or recently anyway, they, they were announcing that they've talked Virgin Airways into giving veterans priority seating and, and mentioning them, which I don't think actually goes to the heart of the issue. For a homeless veteran, what good will that do? Or for a veteran who's agoraphobic, can't leave his or her house, what good will having priority seating on a plane that they can't afford to get on do? Nobody trusts them on Medicare. Nobody trusts them on education. The education model they had of private has failed. There's very little. And I'm sure that they'll keep trying out all these different issues. It's almost like they're road testing for the next federal election whenever that is going to be held. But but still, it always comes back to stop the boats, strong borders. And the militaristic option that they're bringing up with, uh, admittedly, it's quite a gimmicky thing. And no one's going to argue that, that people that have served in the military shouldn't be recognised in, in some level, but this just seemed to be quite a, quite a bit of a gimmick. My feeling is that at the moment they're road testing all of these different things, but they've still got the, the stop the boats or immigration detention as, or the message of drownings at sea as a, as a strong political message that they'll keep trying again and again. Hopefully we might see the end of it at the next election, but who knows? Anything that can get a political party a vote, they'll go for it. I don't think anything's sticking. (laughs) So I don't know what's left either. You run on defence, the economy, the law, that's about it. (laughs) And they've lost on all three. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, listen through SoundCloud, YouTube and Spotify, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, the marketing of a Prime Minister. Prime Minister Scott Morrison failed in his first political test during the Wentworth by-election, but he did follow up with the national apology to victims of institutional child sexual abuse, and that showed how well Parliament can work at its best. But then he backtracked on his promise to consider getting families and children off Nauru and stalled on his promise to stop religious schools discriminating against gay students and gay teachers. His latest polling shows that he's in negative land, His disapproval rating is now higher than his approval rating and the two-party preferred vote for the Liberal National Party is stuck on 46%. And if that was repeated on election day, it would result in a loss of at least 19 seats and of course they would lose government. We mentioned some time ago how Scott Morrison's first day as Prime Minister could also be his high watermark. Could that now end up being the case and is it all downhill from here? Even Malcolm Turnbull came in with some promise of being decent. If nothing else, we could send Malcolm overseas not worrying that he would embarrass us in the way his predecessor might have. Tony Abbott came in with some fairly strong credentials. Rhodes Scholar, 16 years in Parliament, had been a Minister for Health and was a a known figure. Scott Morrison used Peter Dutton as a stalking horse. There were reports of Mitch Feifeld 
very upset that he'd perhaps made a mistake in not in being part of the whole thing and and rolling Malcolm altogether. Malcolm was, by the way, never going to win and was not a terribly good prime minister, but he was the one that people wanted to vote against, I think. When we do get a new prime minister, people generally are prepared to give them a go. So whether that's a a new prime minister that comes in at a general election, and in recent times it's been more of a backroom coup that's brought us a new prime minister, but, but even still, I think people generally are prepared to give a new prime minister a go and see how they turn out. In quite a few cases, they're, they're a bit of an unknown quantity and no one knows what they're going to be like as a prime minister until they actually get to that position. Many criticisms of Scott Morrison have been based around the spin and marketing, the, the daggy dad idea, the baseball cap dag, the rugby dad. There's all of these different weird things going on. And, and of course, if you're unknown, what do you do as a prime minister? You get out there as often as possible. You get into a bus and you drive around Queensland. You put on your silly baseball cap. You get out the slogans. You want people to notice, and especially when you haven't got that much time between now and the next federal election. But it it seems to be a little bit try-hard for my liking. I think he knows at some level he's in trouble. He overplayed his hand. He's ended up in a job that he's not suited for, that he's not equipped for, and that really he's struggling doing. Suddenly he, he acquitted himself fairly well in the apology to people, but... It wasn't the iconic moment because I think there was a sense in which nobody quite believed it, that he was doing what he had to do and he spoke well, let's let's not mince words, and and it was a good speech, it was well written. But there was a sense, unlike, say, Kevin Rudd's apology to the stolen generation, there was this sense of he's doing this because he has to do it. He's not doing it because it's something that he believes. And one thing that has come up over the, well, ever since Barnaby Joyce came into office, that idea of the retail politics. And and that seems to be what Scott Morrison's strategy is based around. It's that idea of the retail politics that you talk about specific things that affect people's lives on a daily basis, such as the big push about power prices and electricity bills. That's the big slogan that he's been pushing, that we'll get electricity prices down, even though the electricity bill is only, on average, it's number 10 on the list of household expenses. And of course, you want people to be paying less for their electricity rather than more, but still, put in context, it's not such a big issue. But that's the thing that he's pushing forward, the retail politics of electricity bills. It's an attempt to connect with the everyday. I noticed that he said, I've got a very big mortgage, which... Because a lot of people said, well, on your wage, you should be paying it down and it shouldn't, and it shouldn't be a worry. Where there are people, of course, who are struggling to pay their mortgage and struggling to pay rent. He's got even more of a tin ear than Malcolm Turnbull did, which is saying something. And to give Malcolm Turnbull his due, he never pretended to be able to think like the average person. We'll give him that. Tony Abbott maybe had more of a tin ear. His... Attempts to be a blokey bloke are outdated. Sculling the beer at the cricket came across as a Bob Hawke wannabe. It may have played to the crowd there. And we have to point out that Bob Hawke never actually drank alcohol at all during his time as Prime Minister. Exactly. He lacks the thing that I think most of his predecessors had to a greater or lesser extent, and that's dignity. He never looks like he's dignified. Neither did Tony Abbott. (laughs) Malcolm Turnbull looked dignified, Julia Gillard looked dignified, Kevin Rudd looked dignified, John Howard looked dignified, Bob Hawke, Paul Keating, 
Bob Hawke could still add gravitas to the right type of event and be substantial. And the other factor is that if you haven't got much time between now and the next election, like you've got to work so quickly to get things happening. But I've noticed that Scott Morrison just seems to be more of a bowerbird type of politician where he's copying from different politicians, different techniques. And of course, you want to be copying the best tactics and techniques from other people. But he seems to be, one criticism has been that he's Trump light. Also, he does push on that idea of the retail politics, as, as I mentioned, from people such as Barnaby Joyce. It's reflective of what we mentioned before, that scattergun approach to public policy, sending out as many flares, as many different messages as possible and seeing what sticks and whatever sticks they'll hang on to. But the problem for them at the moment is that nothing is really sticking and and it doesn't matter how many times they travel around Queensland in a bus, it's a difficult strategy to comprehend. Queensland is probably the state to be least worried about unless they're just trying to shore up all Queensland seats and protect Peter Dutton, which my understanding is nobody's really interested in protecting Peter Dutton. The other factor is that if you're going to all of these marginal seats, it's also sending out a message to your opponents, the Labor Party, that you're in trouble in those seats. And that means that they can direct their resources over there as well. And it's similar to what happened in the 2007 federal election campaign where John Howard, he kept on going further north to all these places in Queensland that he'd just never been to before. And that sent out the message to the Labor Party, hang on, we've got real problems in this seat, we're going up there to see if we can sandbag it. And of course, Kevin Rudd would follow up the following day and he'd be there sending out a message to all these people. So I think that's the problem with this Queensland bus idea, that all they're doing is sending out a message to their opponents that this is where we're campaigning, this is where we think we're in trouble. They do have around 10 very marginal seats in Queensland. The election can be won and lost in Queensland for them. They've probably given up on Victoria, probably given up on New South Wales, South Australia, West Australia, Tasmania. There's just not enough seats in those areas to really worry about too much. There was that GST policy that basically I think nearly every Premier knocked back about guaranteeing that Western Australia got uh, a certain amount of GST, and that just failed. So I think, yeah, they've given up on Western Australia. I don't know that there's anything he can do. Having said that, we live in a post-Abbott world where no rules seem to apply, and we could be looking at, you know, a six-seat majority at the end of the next election. You can keep trying to put out the spot fires here and there, the GST issue in WA or Stuart Roberts and his misappropriation of funds or Julie Bishop and not declaring shoes or you can go up to Queensland or wherever. It just seems like there's this dam that's got all all of these little leaks coming out of it. I think that's what their issue is at the moment. There's just too many smaller things that are problematic for them and it's just going to be difficult to hold the flood of activity that's going to come against them pretty soon. The party needs a total reconstruction. That might be the legacy of Scott Morrison. The party was driven into the ground, not just by him, by a whole range of things, a lot of which we've spoken about here, pernicious IPA influence, too close to dying businesses who, too close to spivs. We, we live in a spivocracy at the moment. And it's almost like the Liberal National Party has been reconstructed or they've tried to reconstruct it when they've been in government over the past five years. And that's a that's quite an ugly sight. You don't do these sort of things when you're in government. You do it when you've suffered a severe election loss at a federal election. You've been thrown out of office. 
you spend the next five years, six years, two terms, three terms, you regenerate the party, you develop new ideas. And that's probably the best thing for the Liberal National Party, to spend a little bit of time out of office, in opposition. They just really need to reconstruct themselves and come back in a better state than what they are at the moment. One that is more in line with the majority of what people are thinking about and what they care about. That's it for this new politics podcast. Thanks for listening in. We produce the program every month and you can continue the conversation at our website, newpolitics.com.au. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks to all and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next month.